Well, hello. Uh, we're back for another conversation about uh, evolution and the scientific method, metaphysics, and uh, several other uh, topics. Um, there is a part one to this conversation uh, that's probably going to be um, made available somewhere in the links. Now, uh, we're missing one of our um, participants, or so not sure if he's going to join us later or not. We're still open to that possibility, but we decided to go ahead and get started. So I'm Pastor Mike, and uh, this is Dan. Um, anyway, <laughs> say hello, Dan. Um, I, I think we introduced ourselves a bit last week, so we probably don't need to do that again. Um, any any thoughts? Have, have you had a chance to go over the video from last week, or do you remember anything that you wanted to, to say, like when we closed off, or any thoughts before we start on, on the next session I, I enjoyed uh talking to you um and it was a fun conversation uh i, I remember it fairly well so. okay okay good so um all right so i mean i, I have some some um next steps i guess i i want to take but i don't know if you if you had anything else any other direction you wanted to take things um uh, i think i'm good yeah i'm, okay. I'm here for uh, whatever comes okay so i guess my kind of assessment of where the conversation was at last week is that we were working with at least three different metaphysical constructs. So basically the way I looked at it was that, um, you know, if we were sitting here with uh, a, a scientist that was essentially atheist uh, or naturalist or however we want to call him. And if he was kind of give us his perspective, uh, he would have a certain metaphysic or a certain perspective of reality just coming from that naturalistic uh, view of things. And I felt like I had a different metaphysic that, and, and, and it's not necessarily that that's my personal metaphysics, but it's, it's a metaphysics I'm working with when I deal with, with the science-related science issues. And then I felt that you guys were kind of presenting a third option. And I think the key for continuing the conversation is figuring out a way to bridge the three metaphysics. So at least we understand each other because uh, if we don't find a way to communicate across paradigms, we're kind of talking past each other or, or we're, we're missing elements in the conversation somehow. So, you know, to use kind of like an analogy to illustrate them, uh, basically, um, <clears throat> The, the metaphysics that I was working with is, is a very simple um, picture of like, essentially of the, the, um, the relationship between God and the world is similar to the relationship between a human being and, um, and an object that they're building. So for example, you know, say an engineer is building a, building a car, uh, building a brand new automobile that runs runs on water or runs on something else, and they're just sitting there designing it and then building it and 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 making it work. Now, an atheist uh, working with the naturalistic metaphysic would have a very similar view of the card that I have. In other words, it's, it's this mechanical device. You know, it's it works logically following certain laws, but it doesn't have the designer. It doesn't have the engineer. It essentially developed on its own somehow by various random processes. Um, now, you guys, however, um, I don't know what would be a good analogy to use with this, but it almost seems like you guys added another layer to it. Uh, like, yeah, it's a, 
Yeah, I think that's insightful. So I, here's the terminology I might use. I might say, so there's the naturalist view, right? Which is that there's there's just all that there is is material yeah. or creation, whatever that means. Um, yours is arguably deist. And I think you use that language. Some, yeah, right? yeah, so exactly. it's sort of a deist view. God sets it in motion and then there it goes. And then the last the, the view we were articulating, I think can fairly be called classical theist. Yeah. That this is in fact sort of the, the uh, Christian synthesis that arises in the, you know, first several centuries mm -hmm. of the church um, bridging and synthesizing uh, Christian thought and Christian understanding of God with classical um, Greek ideas. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, just for our listeners to understand the, the, the difference in metaphysics, it's essentially that there's another layer beneath all the stuff that's happening. So uh, maybe one way to, to imagine it is that instead of the engineer designing the car directly, uh, maybe the car is being designed within a computer environment. So mm -hmm. essentially like there's existence happen, happens at a different layer and within the computer environment, the car is being designed, but, but because there's this two layers to it, um, the car, within the computer environment could appear the way the, the, the atheist envisions it. In other words, it's not actually being designed by somebody directly, but it's developing naturally, so to speak. It's, it's basically just developing following certain rules. And from the atheist perspective, it lo looks completely random and completely natural without any, anything guiding it. But behind the scenes, there's actually a programmer that, that designed the whole thing and it's making it happen. So it's basically a dualistic perspective where, uh, you know, reality happens in, in two layers, so to speak. Now, I think the, the issue here, to, it, we need to find a way to kind of communicate across these three paradigms because um, a large segment of the scientific world functions within this mechanistic paradigm. And we need to see how the scientific method interacts with all these different metaphysics and, and see how they, how we can um, address concepts across the metaphysics. So that's, I, I don't know if we're going to be able to, to pull this off, but that's kind of what I would like to do for this coming session, just to find out how to, how to um, get the, you know, ideas across through the different metaphysics and be able to communicate and have a coherent conversation. Um, yeah. I like that. Um, and I think that the computer analogy is, is a helpful one. Um, another one, I think, that can communicate the sort of a classical theist view mm -hmm. in some ways. And all of this, I think, um, from a theological perspective, where I think we're always speaking analogically about God, right? So none of this actually fully captures God. Obviously, there's yeah. going to be um, ways where we need to um, say, well, it's not exactly like that, but this captures the heart of the distinction we're drawing. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, so um, I really like the idea of God as storyteller in terms of it, it captures the, the idea of intentionality, um, but also like a storyteller, unlike somebody who just writes a book, a storyteller is both creating and sustaining the story in its telling. And I think that captures the sort of idea of an ongoing intimate connection uh, between God uh, the divine logos, right, which is like mm -hmm. word and logic, and sort of the which connects up to the storyteller idea nicely too, um, and that sort of the, the God's storytelling is in and through um, and constituting all of the things. Um, 
and you know we can we can fudge that but and that's really distinct from the deist concept i think you're like you're really nailing it that god sort of set up a clock and it's in motion or built yeah. this car and there it went um and i think one way to bridge just those two actually that's kind of interesting is to say that um you know, if you look, so let's say God is a storyteller and the God could be telling a story that is, uh, that is intimately analyzable in its physical details down to the smallest molecular or subatomic level you want, right? That that could all be part of the story. And so you're right, like in some sense, it, it at least appears to be one layer, right? Mm-hmm. That's sort of the, the content of the story, but that does, still doesn't answer, well, who's the, who's the storyteller who's mm-hmm. <laughs> creating and sustaining the whole story. And so they're distinct questions and i would say one interesting and appealing thing about the um, classical theist model um, let's just say the storyteller model to make it simpler um, is that it can contain it conceptually is it's it's intuitive and it conceptually contains sort of everything that's in the deist model yeah um and then i think the naturalist model basically is you know i mean to to presented uncharitably is we are mm-hmm. in a story without a storyteller yeah <laughs> it's it's just the the storyline and there's no room for there being a storyteller um and i think that does actually map deeply to the computer model um the reason i kind of like the storyteller image more as a way of conveying the classical theist one mm-hmm. is that the computer itself is just a mechanism that's yeah. churning stuff out and that implies a mechanistic bottom layer um, but the classical theist concept is that there is personality to mm-hmm. this fundamental yeah, yeah. being that is creating things. Um, but it's interesting to consider that you could be a sort of weird, um, I, like um, uh, idealist, uh, an idealist without ideas, right? You could imagine mm-hmm. that ultimately everything is kind of ideal. Like everything is kind of like some kind of weird computer that who knows where it came from, yeah. but it's not personal. There's no personal or sure. intentionality to yeah. that fundamental layer. And so I think there's like, it's almost like you could make a map where there's, deist is to classical theist as naturalist is to this sort of um uh idealist mm-hmm. without ideas right yeah, <laughs> something yeah. like that yeah yeah uh, you know the the famous uh what would be the famous model of all this is the the movie the matrix you know like there's this bottom layer that's reality and then there's this matrix where everybody everybody's living their life thinking it's the real world so anyway uh, the i think the problem with a lot of these things is that's because so much of science happens within this naturalistic paradigm in other words when scientists are out there studying the world they're not thinking about this other layer they're not thinking about how um, at least the majority of scientists, or at least a good segment of scientists. I, I don't know what the numbers are. I haven't, you know, looked up to see how many atheists, how many theists, how many Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and others are scientists. But, uh, you know, when they're, the majority of people, when they're going about the science, they're, they're following a sort of mechanistic process. You know, they're, they're looking at the natural world, uh, the physical world, and they're they're seeing a problem and they're coming up with hypotheses and their hypotheses are always naturalistic. They're always something that has to do with the physical interactions and they're making prediction and then testing those predictions. So the majority of science happens within this context, but as Christians, a lot of times we come at things from the classical theist perspective. Um, and I, I think the, the classical theist perspective doesn't allow us to 
to really evaluate the limitations of the scientific method to, to see how far we can stretch it. Uh, so that's why a lot of times I say, okay, we need to kind of step into a, into a deistic paradigm just to think about science properly. And, and but anyway, in the, right now, what I, what I would like to do is to see if there's a way for us to, to communicate across paradigms. Um, so I don't know, maybe I need to ask you some questions. Like from within your perspective, the way you view the universe, when you think of uh, reality as the, the atheist sees it, right? So basically um, there was a big bang, there was something before the big bang, maybe, maybe not, but the whole thing was just a series of natural processes. Do you view reality in that same way? In other words, you know, do you think that uh, the history of the universe is fairly similar to how uh, the naturalist sees the history of the universe, except that there's this other layer beneath it that, that is God? Or do you think that maybe some of the things that naturalists believe happened didn't actually happen? Or how, what's your view of the, the overall history of the universe? Yeah, so from one perspective, um, this might be a nice way of getting at some of that. Okay. Um, so sometimes it's intuitive and, and sometimes some arguments for God will say, well, what was before the Big Bang? Whatever was before the Big Bang was God. Um, and that, there's something to that that's an interesting sort of thought exercise that, that there is some kind of an infinite regress that opens up in terms of how we think about time. And maybe our concepts of time just break down. I mean, we even from the physics we know, mm -hmm. we know that our, our intuitive concepts of time don't serve us very well. Right, we can we yeah. can analytically grasp things um, that are extremely unintuitive to us about you know general relativity and and things like that, um, and so I, I'm inclined to say, well, you know, at some point our concepts of time break down as we have them right now, our intuitive concepts, um, and that's par for the course, right? Why I don't know why we would think our our intuitions about time necessarily tell us everything, um, but uh, I would also say that the classical theist argument or perception of things, is it really about God necessarily being before that in the timeline on this timeline? Yeah. It's more that God is underneath it the whole time, including mm -hmm. that, right? Like what's underneath that whole order? Um, yeah. And that's- um, Let me throw in something yeah. in there because I was just listening yeah, yeah. To, to somebody uh, kind of address this topic with an analogy. So yeah. they said like, imagine a two dimensional world where people are interacting in two-dimensional space and you're a three-dimensional person interacting within this two-dimensional frame. Now, mm -hmm. if this two-dimensional individual is moving along a timeline, you mm -hmm. as a three-dimensional individual could, could simultaneously all those different time points at the same time, so to speak, you know? So, so yeah. essentially it was an argument for God as timeless or eternal yeah that's yeah a timeless version of eternal. no i think that's that's related right we're yeah. sort of getting at this idea yeah. of god being outside of time and it doesn't have to necessarily be a super mystical concept i mean if i'm holding a book you know in a certain sense i'm i relate to the entirety of what's in that book yeah from outside of it right so it's mm -hmm. not it's not a super difficult concept to get your head around um and, and another way to put it too is like well, it could be that the story of the universe we're in that god is telling is there's the big bang and before the big bang there was you know, a giant ocean that was a rabbit that sneezed and made the Big Bang, right? So is that therefore God? No, God God is the one who told the story that started with the ocean rabbit sneezing, right? I, I don't think that's what it mm -hmm. was, but like <laughs> it illustrates the point, right? Um, and it's like, well, what was before that? Well, from the standpoint of sort of a classical theist or a storyteller God, it's like, well, what was before that was well, God, but not in a sense of just the timeline, right? That um, God is before it in terms of 
logical and metaphysical priority. Yeah. Um, and so, but, and this actually has, I think, really interesting and serious implications for the questions you're asking. Um, and I think to a really great extent, um, here's what I think in a, in a nutshell has happened with the, the extent to which a lot of scientists are naturalists. Yeah. I think it's just fashion. I think they're specialized and it's, it's actually fashion in a particular way. I run a fabric shop, right? So I, I don't mm-hmm. actually want to denigrate something by calling it fashion. Right. Um, but I think it's really like fashion and fashion speaks. It, it communicates something. It says something about who we are and where we are and how we think about ourselves. Um, and, and I think what happened in a nutshell is that this um, uh, certain sort of methodological tendencies, um, a sort of methodological naturalism where you're just trying to look for, identifiable we, we talked about this last time right it was sort of this public identifiable information yeah. um which doesn't actually have anything to do with metaphysical naturalism right but but the methodological habits rhyme with this metaphysical posture mm-hmm. right and and there's um there's a really great book uh from daniel kahneman um called thinking fast and slow um, where they talk about a lot of cognitive biases. And I think what's actually operating there in terms of the popularity of a naturalist metaphysics among some groups of scientists. Um, and so it, I've, I've seen some of the stats on it and they are you know, overrepresented in some, in other sciences, especially like medical sciences, they're yeah. under, or they're, they're like, there's, they're less influential. Um, but I think that, um, yeah, it's because these things sort of rhymed and seemed to fit. And because of this uh, cognitive bias called what you see is all there is, right? It's, it's a sort of a focusing illusion. We focus our attention on this all the time. And it's just really normal for people to think that whatever we're really focused on is the whole thing because our brains naturally just eliminate the rest of the field as extraneous because it's extraneous to our work. Um, and so um, I think that's, that goes a long way towards explaining wh- why metaphysical naturalism is popular among scientists because it sort of rhymes with a lot of their day-to-day practice. But if you were to talk to them, and I do talk to a fair number of scientists and I have a fair number of scientist friends who are Christians, um, they, they stop and they say, well, but yeah, but actually, right, this metaphysics doesn't follow from our work in any way. It's not required for our work in any way. Um, and I would argue, and, and anyone who's watching can watch the previous one to see more in depth, I'd argue that we can actually have a superior account of science and what scientists are doing. And it's actually superior for the training of scientists, for scientists understanding their own work. Um, we can have a superior account in basically every way without appealing to naturalism of any sort. That in fact, what we're appealing to is publicness, uh, that we're appealing to coherence. Um, maybe we're appealing to consilience, where things make sense together, um, and all of these sorts of things, which are actually much more friendly to a classical theistic view. Okay, so uh, I think one of the difficulties um, that I see um, when we have this sort of broader view of science is that like when it comes tangibly to what the scientist actually does, um, it's hard to tell how it affects their methodology in any way. So let me give you a, go ahead. You go ahead first and then I'll go on. Okay, all right, so let me give you an example. Like just just basic basic scientific reasoning like <clears throat> and you know let's say i'm driving the i'm, I'm losing my voice again <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> i'm um, let's say i'm driving down the road from my house on a path that i drive every day and then one morning as i'm driving i see a, a massive boulder in the middle of the road right so i stop my car and, and i start thinking you know why is this boulder here and 
I immediately start thinking of possibilities. I come up with hypotheses. So I say, okay, well, there's this hill nearby. So it, it's possible that it broke off from somewhere up at the top of the hill and then rolled down the hill and ended up here. And that's why it's here in the middle of the road. Now, if that's my hypothesis, then that immediately gives me certain predictions that I can work with and test out. So I could say, okay, if that's the case, I should be able to get out of my car, walk up this hill and find a lot of evidence of a massive boulder rolling down the hill, you know, breaking down, uh, ripping up vegetation, you know, making whatever tracks in the ground and so on. I should be able at the top of the hill to see a place where a rock broke off and all this. And I could actually walk up the hill and test my predictions. If I walk all the way up and I see no evidence of anything having changed um, as, as, thing, as far as something rolling down, and I know that boulder wasn't there the day before because I just drove it, then I have to change my hypothesis and come up with some other explanation, right? So one of the key elements in science is, is that we, we come up with hypotheses and we make predictions and we test those predictions in terms of natural situations. You know, we don't think about, well, there's a, a metaphysical layer underneath that is possibly responsible for why this happened. You know, maybe somehow from, from within this, um, whatever the name is for this other layer, uh, maybe something emerged out of nowhere and that's why this boulder's here or anything like that, you know? So we always have to, we always come up with some explanation. You know, if, if this hypothesis doesn't work, then my next hypothesis is gonna be another natural one, which is maybe that somebody had a boulder on the back of their truck and they were driving down the road and the thing fell off their truck. I mean, that's still a natural explanation. It's not some, some, something supernatural. Or, you know, you, I know you, you don't like the terminology natural and supernatural, but I don't know, I don't have a good terminology for this uh, other layer that we're talking about in the classical metaphysic. So, uh, uh, so in other words, the, the way we think about science is always coming up with testable predictions from within physical interactions of, of elements within our cosmos. And um, the question of course is if we do allow for the existence of a God, for the existence of some other, some greater, something greater to reality, um, science doesn't seem to have a place to in insert that into the picture. You know, there's always this sort of cause and effect relationship in everything that we, we do and test in science. <clears throat> so, yeah, is, is it okay if I play with your boulder analogy a little sure, bit? Sure, sure. Um, so it's a good one. And it's nice to have a, a sort of simple example where we can think about it. Um, so I think, so I would say, you know, as you go and you realize that the evidence that can be observed, because yeah. everything you're describing involves observation, mm -hmm. right? You go and you observe the observable and the publicly observable evidence doesn't, isn't coherently connected to your first theory, right? Yeah. This, this theory that it rolled down would seem to entail that it did some kind of damage on the way down. Now, maybe your yeah. theory is wrong. Maybe it could have bounced and done one giant bounce down or something right sure, like sure. so maybe there's something wrong with your theory but you know a normal a normal process of a boulder rolling down a mountain sort of a yeah. normal theory of how that happens and the observable evidence don't fit yeah. therefore you reject it now is this next is this explanation natural is it supernatural what is that well, so let's go back to the storyteller metaphor mm -hmm. let's just say for the sake of argument you're inside of a story and well, what kind of story is it? Well, let's say it's a, it's a reasonably realistic story, right? It's a story where like it's, it's reasonably realistic in terms of the way we normally see the world. Um, you know, so a wizard didn't make it fly down, right? <laughs> this is the, the type of story you're in. Um, if it's that kind of a story, 
then you should expect to, to see it work that way. And in fact, mm -hmm. the author of that story wouldn't be abiding by genre conventions if uh, they just had a rock suddenly appear out of nowhere. And then, then it said, and the rock was there because the author wrote the sentence, the rock was there. Yeah. That would be a different kind of literature, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, so, um, and so what I would say is that the storyteller metaphysical model, mm -hmm. um, which is a, a super simplified classical theistic metaphysics, right? The storyteller metaphysical model is fully compatible with everything you said. Yeah. Right. It, it, and so uh, there's uh, Stephen Jay Gould has this concept of non-overlapping magisteria, mm -hmm. right? That you have the science stuff and scientists are in charge of the science stuff and there's religious stuff and the religious people are in charge of religious stuff. And, and my big problem with that, where that doesn't fit well with this is in fact, um, I would argue that it is a, an, an entirely contained within magisteria, that, that the theological or metaphysical magisterium, whatever that is, concerns itself with these sorts of bigger yeah. things. Mm -hmm. And that all of the scientific discussion we could possibly have is, is wrapped inside of it. And so it's hard to now, you know, we really can't, I think, um, fully address our metaphysical questions through the scientific method, mm -hmm. precisely because it is constrained by processes of public obser observation and theory building and communities who have warranted trust in their ability to do that, right? That, that science and all of these levels, we can cut it all kinds of ways, but basically um, science is a carve out of theology. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a littler thing that fits entirely inside of it. <clears throat> yeah, so, so I understand, <laughs> understand your, yeah. the whole thing that you're saying, and I'm still trying to, to see if there's a way to, to get to something that I'm trying to get to. Because yeah. I think no matter what I say, you're always going to find a way to incorporate it within in, within your kind of this greater narrative that you're talking about. Um, <clears throat> but okay, so let's try this. So within the physical world, there's some things that work and some things that just don't work because of the limitations of physical law. So I don't I don't know if I can come up with an example or not. But for example, one of the in, in the things I said previously with a boulder. I was able to eliminate a hypothesis because um, I, you know, I expected that if that hypothesis was correct, my predictions would come true. But um, if if we look at the the entirety of of existence, everything that um, you know, if we, <clears throat> at least from the naturalist perspective, the, the naturalist has an explanation or at least hopes to eventually discover an explanation for the entire thing from beginning to end. Um, now, to the point where like you could say, well, sure, but but yeah, you can explain all this stuff, but at some point God was behind it or at some point there was, there was this story underneath it. But the naturalist will say, we don't need that story. We could explain the whole thing without any other external factor. So what I'm trying to understand, at least for now, is if you feel that there's some some point in the naturalist paradigm where where the where the thing breaks down and you definitely need some kind of higher power involved or else it wouldn't work or do you think the whole thing would work from beginning to end and maybe in a thousand years from now the naturalist will be able to to have a complete picture of everything that exists and a complete explanation of everything and solve every scientific dilemma and then you're still going to come around and say, yes, but this is contained within this greater story, this greater narrative. And God is behind the whole thing as it is because he 
he wanted the whole story to be self-contained. So I don't know if you understand my question. It's getting complicated. Totally. At this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in a sense, this is a this could be taken as an apologetics question, mm -hmm. right? So well, cool, you say that, and then a naturalist says, "Well, I don't need that." Yeah. Right. But it, and it could also be taken as in a less apologetic mode, where it's like about sort of trying to argue them, uh, and more about like, well, yeah, what what does one truly say about that in terms of ontology, right? What in terms of epistemology, in terms of metaphysics, what 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 does one say about that? Um, and I'll take it, I, I'm going to try to take it in the second sense. Yeah. Um, but actually that second sense has a bunch of different takes on it. Um, so first of all, I would say, well, has the naturalist shown that they don't need that? Because uh, what often happens actually is they just assume that they don't. Yeah. Um, which gets back to this, there's, there's actually a methodological practice mm -hmm. of looking for publicly available information, which I would argue they have blown up past the the confines of what it's what it's actually good for right they've they've fallen for the cognitive bias of what you see is all all that there is and they've just projected that onto metaphysics and they haven't really thought about metaphysics and, and they just you know shake their hands but in, in all of that i mean well they need to have more than that if they don't want me to just dismiss them yeah. as someone who's not reflective enough to realize that they're overgeneralizing from a small sample size, yeah. that they're overgeneralizing from, or even worse, actually not even overgeneralizing from a small sample, because this isn't just about um, what they can prove or demonstrate, but they're, they're overgeneralizing from the way they want things to be, right? You have you have all these people say, well, everything's ultimately just little particles bouncing around. It's like, well, I don't know if that's, th that's not what particle, that doesn't actually seem to fit very well with what we're learning in terms of quantum physics and things like that. Mm -hmm. And we, we were talking a little bit beforehand about uh, John Conway's free will lectures, uh, which I'm not uh, equipped to evaluate on terms of their mathematical content or in terms of their quantum physics content. Um, but he is, you know, a highly regarded mathematician working with a highly regarded quantum physicist um, and arguing essentially that the uh, naturalist order is not materially deterministic. Now, hey, if, if you don't want things to be materially deterministic, then you don't need anything more. But right, or if you want things, if you don't care about whether things are deterministic, then you would say, okay, well, I guess that's how it is, yeah. right? Um, but, if, but a lot of physicists, they want determinism, right? Mm -hmm. They really want there to be a deterministic universe because they want it to be able to be modeled. And a funny thing, this is kind of funny, but it's also very serious. A funny thing you could say then is, well, well if Conway is right, then if you really, really want a deterministic universe, I don't really want one, but if you really, really want a deterministic universe, then you need something higher than a physical level of order to say that it's deterministic, right? Because we could still live in a, in a divinely deterministic universe, arguably, yeah. mm -hmm. um, even if it's not physically determinist. So I, I think, um, but, but I think underneath that, the sort of bigger point or the underlying point of that whole discussion is, um, I don't think you need any metaphysics at all to do science in a certain sense, right? All you need to do is say, well, I have an internally coherent <laughs> model here. I have some publicly available observations uh, and we have a community that's actually sort of uh, building warranted trust around increasing observations around that. And it could be that underneath that, there's nothing. It could be that underneath that there is a storyteller God. It could be that underneath that there is a deistic God who set everything in motion like clockwork and now it's all just running as it goes. Um, it could be that there's all kinds of things underneath that and it just doesn't have anything to do with that. Right. And another way I would put this is that um, that a scientist like that, sometimes they act like they are post metaphysical, mm -hmm. that they have resolved metaphysics because I have discovered that 
I've discovered that when I drop a pen, it falls at this rate. Therefore, we are done with metaphysics. It's like, that is incorrect. Yeah. You, are, you, are, you, have not, you are not post-metaphysical because you can measure the rate of a fall of a pen or, or anything else, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so philosophically, there's something really absent from that view. Um, and I, I kind of, I, I actually like to talk about being pre-metaphysical mm-hmm. in the sense of, well, let's be kind of open-minded about it. Let's be curious about whatever these things are that are beyond what we can see. Um, and I do think that that's a powerful answer actually to the metaphysical naturalist who thinks that science dis- disproves whatever or makes everything extraneous. It's like, it, it doesn't. Um, and, and in fact, I think from a, to a first approximation, all of these metaphysical approaches, whether it's naturalism or deism or classical theism, um, have actually a very loose relationship to the practice of science. Uh, personally, I think another thing that a naturalist or a scientist might want is uh, a, a philosophy that deeply undergirds and encourages science. Mm-hmm. And I would say that classical theism does more of that than metaphysical naturalism does, right? So that might be something more that they want that classical theism can give them. Yeah, so I think, um... At least some, you know, I, I posted this video, the previous video in a group that had quite a few atheists and, and they weren't happy because we were starting with, with the assumption that there is a God instead of proving that there is a God, uh, which anyway, that's a whole lot of discussion. But, um, you know, I kind of lost my train of thought with that. <laughs> I'm just going to jump to something else. Um, so I guess for me, the, the, the question here is... Um, you know, like I said, in in your perspective, I could see how your perspective, or th- this is what I was getting at, that like, at least for the more informed scientists, even if they're coming from an atheist perspective, they can appreciate other scientists who are Christian, as long as their metaphysics uh, jives well with the scientific perspective or jives well with the naturalist metaphysic where they could work together because you know mm-hmm. you believe there's this other layer i believe there isn't another layer but we can still do our science and move on and and not get hung up over it or uh, sure. whatever so i i, I yeah. can appreciate that i guess the question is <clears throat> within your particular metaphysic um i still don't know if in your view like if Okay, so let me back up a little bit. You you mentioned how how within the within the naturalist perspective, um, they don't have a big enough sample size, which is correct at this point in time. But you know, it's possible that say a thousand years from now or whatever, and assuming science keeps advancing at, at an amazing rate, maybe they'll be able to come up with natural explanations for everything. And at that point in time you could say, hey, they've studied the entire universe, they studied all there is, and they found a way to explain everything completely naturally without, without relying on any external elements. Um, would you at that point say, well, it doesn't matter because my metaphysic can, can incorporate that as well? And just, you know, the, there's this creator behind it all and the creator wrote a story that is logical from beginning to end. To the point where where you could almost write him out of the picture, or or would you would you think that that's not going to happen? Do you think that at some point, if scientists keep studying the universe, there's going to be a point in time where they're going to hit a wall and realize, hey, we cannot explain all this stuff? Yeah. So I, first, I want to um, address something you mentioned. You shared this with a group of atheists, and they were unhappy because they thought that we were assuming that there is a god. Yeah. Um, and I just want to clarify I, that's actually not what I'm doing 
in this discussion. Yeah. Right. Uh, what I'm doing is comparable in a broad sense to what any scientist does when they lay out a variety of theories. Mm -hmm. We're just we're just analyzing metaphysically yeah. a variety of possible metaphysical theories exactly. and how they relate to observable evidence. Yeah. Yeah. The the um, the problem with, with the atheists is, is an epistemological problem that I in fact one of the one of the people I talked to was actually willing to come on this into this conversation with us. <laughs> And I, I, I wouldn't mind bringing him if you're okay with it and if David's okay That'd be with fine. it. I, I love but that. I, yeah. I think he would take us on a bit of a detour because we're going to have to discuss epistemology first. Um, and there's some issues there because from their perspective, they're arguing, listen, we don't even need to consider other metaphysical hypotheses until you bring evidence for them. And in the, until you can provide overwhelming evidence that these hypotheses are worth considering, we just need to stick to the naturalistic hypothesis because that's the one we know works or whatever. So anyway, there's an epistemic issue there that's gonna take us kind of on a fairly major detour if we go there, no, but yeah, it's, sorry it's to a, interrupt, go ahead. That's great, no, it's, it's a, now, now to come back to your question. So, okay, cool, so let's imagine, and I think you actually touched on it already, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I, let me just layer in what you're actually saying here to this, because I think it directly relates. Um, so what we need here is a, a theory and a yeah. question of what evidence comports with that theory. Yeah. Right. So um, and the storyteller God illustration uh, that you touched on perfectly is like, OK, cool. Imagine a world where people uh, have understood and can explain every observable phenomenon using concrete observable models and that the scientific method has not only been enormously successful, um, but it is in fact like, you know, they can understand literally everything that can possibly be observed with it. Mm -hmm. Is that evidence for hypothesis A, metaphysical naturalism, hypothesis B, deism, hypothesis C, uh, classical theism, which we're glossing simply as yeah. a sort of storyteller gun. Yeah. I would argue that it is not evidence for or against any of those three to a significant degree. Yeah, I think the, the <laughs> deist one would probably kind of break down because if you could explain even those mm -hmm. beginning points, then there's no reason to have somebody jumpstart the whole thing. But the other two metaphysics, essentially both work. Oh, that could be, that, that, that's an interesting point. Yeah, like if, like in terms of, if our deist model yeah. implies that it's just, oh, what was before the big bang temporally? Mm -hmm. And let's say that they, let's say that, um, you get to a point of super advanced science where they're like, we have established beyond any shadow of a doubt that uh, maybe like, for example, there's a deep time hypothesis, yeah. right? Where there's like, there can be nothing and um, tiny variations in the quantum field will eventually give rise to a big, yeah. let's say exactly. that somehow at some mm -hmm. point people realize that's the case, yeah. right? Boom. And that, that might be checkmate to a certain kind of deist, mm -hmm. right? Like, no, there's nothing, there's not a God before that, yeah. right? But yeah, but then you're still left with the classical theist account, which fully accounts for the data and has no problem with it. And in fact, can find support from it. So here's what I would say too. So the naturalists find support from this because they say, look, we told you the universe was this sort of naturalistic phenomenon, which is why we were able to analyze it naturalistically and make sense of it. Therefore, this proves our metaphysics. Yeah. But the storyteller would say, no, no, you've just proven that we're in a story being told by someone who wants to be known so fully that they allow themselves to be known fully in this way, at least at least this aspect of who they are. Yeah. Um, but there's but you'll always end up with and I, and I do think and so so at a basic sense, this isn't a proof for the mm -hmm. storyteller hypothesis. Mm -hmm. What it is is it's a demonstration that this theory 
is not in any way contravened by that, okay. right? And so they're both competing metaphysics still, even after all of that is done. Yeah, so basically- If, if it's possible, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, assuming that that happens. So basically the metaphysics can adapt to pretty much any, any type of evidence. Or, it, well, I think it, it has, you know, it's an interesting thing, right? And so you can, and at this point we haven't actually sort of gone full classical theist, right? We mm -hmm. haven't tried to articulate that this story is being told by an all good, <laughs> all-knowing, mm -hmm. uh, all-loving being that is also impassable. And we can, it all, there's yeah, a lot yeah, more yeah. sort of that comes with it. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it, it gets at this creator-sustainer idea. Yeah. Um, I or, would say, though, um, that in my own view, right, we should expect science to succeed. We yeah. should expect people to be able to learn. If, if in addition to it being a story, it is a story in which the creator wants to be known, right? Um, mm -hmm. So that all, not only, it's not just that it, like, I can sort of make this work. It's actually like this comports it's a with. Prediction. It's a yeah, prediction. It fits well with it's a prediction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but um, would you say that it's a prediction of the classical metaphysic that in fact, at some point in the future, it's possible that they, we will be able to prove the entire thing can uh, happen naturally or would you not go that far? Um. So there's two different questions. So I think mm -hmm. in terms of like, you know, a basic storyteller metaphysics, um, it really depends on the type of the storyteller. Um, but also um, there's no, there's no reason to, to, yeah, it just depends on the type of the storyteller. But I would say, so as a Christian, yeah, I would actually, I, I actually believe that God will, you know, restore the created order and that there will come a time when we will know uh, we will uh, be fully known and we will know yeah. God, right? That, that, that we are in, in fact, in a process of learning and discovery in which an infinite being who is infinite love has invited finite creatures mm -hmm. into that process of learning and growth. Yeah. Um, and so from that standpoint, I do think that there will always be more, right? There will always be more to learn and grow in from our standpoint, um, because we are finite beings invited into a relation of infinite yeah, love. Yeah. Um, uh, but I'm talking about the physical material reality. I but mean, I, I think whatever level of discovery we make isn't a threat to that. But there's yeah. also, I think, a basic. So I also think uh, the Conway stuff is a good illustration of where we actually might hit hard limits, hard knowable limits to what is what science is capable of. Okay. Uh, we can say the math can only go so far. Mm -hmm. There's only so much you can do with it. Yeah. Um, so it seems that there's a reasonable case that that is happening. Um, and that there might well be more of that. So I, I don't think, you know, that's not a problem um, necessarily for either of you. I think it's sort of a substantially a different question um, because here we're talking about epistemology. We're talking yeah, about what we yeah. can know rather than what truly is. Sure, sure. And there might just be things that are that we don't know. Yeah. Right? yeah. Or, and this maybe gets even more to the point, there can be things that mm. are that we don't know through a certain approach. Or yeah. through a certain method um, and insofar as science is defined as um, coherent models <clears throat> tracking with publicly available information there actually are already substantial problems in terms of if you're actually just on the ground doing scientific research mm -hmm. um, in any number of fields um, where there's just you don't get a chance to observe certain things yeah right yeah. Um, this I, I, part of my background is social sciences too and this happens a lot in social scientists um, not only because you know, and there's a question of like, if you're an anthropologist or something yeah, like exactly. that, yeah, exactly. observing a community really mm -hmm. does change it in pretty basic and uh, ways that are in principle observable, but in yeah. practice for your research community aren't. So 
That's just yeah, a normal part of science. I mean, yeah. since you mentioned archaeology, you know, you could you could be digging up something, mm -hmm. trying to learn about mm -hmm. an ancient civilization, but maybe, you know, several other generations millennia back have dug up that same stuff and and destroyed yeah. your data. So you don't have data, you haven't you don't have access to knowledge in that sense because your your access has been damaged. So anyway, um, I think uh, let me throw out another analogy here. Um, because I think um, one of the one of the aspects of material reality is that it has sort of certain inherent limitations because it's it's essentially particles and and all these components that are interacting based on a set of laws. So imagine that you had a a room that's made entirely out of metal, and it has no doors or windows. And inside this room, you have a metal box, and there's a bomb inside the box. Right, so the bomb explodes, the metal shot, the metal box shatters, and then it sprays all over this metal room, and the the little pieces of metal lodge all over the place. Maybe some get stuck in the wall, some fall on the ground, whatever. Now, if you were to come into this room later and observe, uh, there's all kinds of different configurations within as to where the different pieces of metal from the box have landed and where, where they are and stuck in the wall or whatever. But there's certain configurations that are, are essentially impossible to be the result of that particular scenario. Uh, in other words, like for example, you, you would never have the entire box shatter and then all the pieces kind of go in a circle and come around and land in one single place just because of the physics of the situation. So within, within our material universe, there's certain rules in place, certain laws based on, on how things interact. And there's certain versions of the universe that could never fully develop on their own, even if some versions of the, of the universe could, the way scientists believe, believe it happened. Um, I don't know, that's, that's a super complex illustration. So I don't know if it, it's making sense still, but um, what I'm saying is that by the very nature of material reality, we don't know ahead of time for a fact that the universe could have developed on its own. Maybe some universes could have and others, other, other versions of the universe would just never develop on it on their own. And they, they would need uh, somebody to kind of jump in within a certain natural process and tweak things along to get to, get to where they are today. Are you talking, so are you getting towards like a cosmological fine tuning argument here? Are you sort of, um, is, is you're making me think of that as maybe, one. Maybe, maybe not. I'm just, yeah. I'm just saying that um, uh, essentially the naturalist paradigm works with this assumption that if we work our way backwards and we study the universe, eventually we're going to find some kind of cause and effect answer for everything that has taken place from beginning to end. And then what you're saying is that if such a thing happens, your metaphysics can accommodate that. It could incorporate it and subsume it and say, hey, mm -hmm. this is perfectly lined up with my metaphysic. Yeah. But the thing is, we don't know ahead of time that that's in fact how the universe happened. It could be that yeah. we live in a universe that it would have been impossible for it to develop naturally from one end to the other. Maybe it needed yeah. some kind of additional intervention. So like things are naturally unfolding to a certain stage then if they're left alone, they're not going to go in the direction we want them. So, so God would have to kind of step in and, and move things in another direction and, and then let it un developed on its own for a while and all these things. So the problem is, as Christians, we don't actually know ahead of time how, how God went about the creative process. 
but science assumes a certain a certain uh, pathway because it has mm -hmm. no choice because it's going off of this naturalistic basis. So essentially it, it always has to find some natural explanation for why things happen this way versus some other way. Um, and, and, you know, there has to be some uh, random, some something based on the laws of physics that explains why certain things ended up the way they did. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where the question is, how do we know that that's what God actually did? How do we know it, it actually happened this way ahead of time? Yeah. So, go ahead. yeah, yeah. There's a lot there. Is it okay if I respond to it or do you want to keep No, no, go, go ahead. I'll, I'll have something else afterwards, but go ahead and see what you have so far. So actually, and to, to, I, I like to do things chiastically, right? So the most recent thing yeah. um, is you're talking about uh, really something that gets to questions of determinism. Yeah. and free will and naturalism in that relationship. And then before that, you had an interesting example of a metal box exploding in a way that doesn't, um, that, that is predicted to be impossible according to the laws of nature. Yeah. Um, and I want to deal with that. So let's deal with the deterministic thing first. Um, I would argue that, um, first of all, science doesn't need determinism. Okay. Right. Um, what, <laughs> what it does though, is it, it needs explicit models. Mm -hmm which have a deterministic character. So this is where, again, where people take this sort of small sample size and they fall into this cognitive illusion, which actually just hurts them as scientists. Like we don't even have to talk about metaphysics. Mm -hmm. Like this actually constrains scientists, I think sometimes in unhelpful ways, where they, they confuse the fact that they're making maybe a deterministic model um, with the fact that the cosmos must be deterministic. It might just be that we make deterministic models sometimes to capture the things that are deterministic yeah. or that seem relatively deterministic um, or yeah, that are I think, um, predictable at some I, scale. I think we're using the, the, the term deterministic differently here because for a scientist, determ determinism versus, uh, versus probabilism is not necessarily like self or what's, in other words, it, they're not, a scientist can accept probability just fine. They could work yeah. with probability just fine. So the universe could be probabilistic and we could still have a sense of why things ended up a certain way. And it could still be that none of the available pathways work or so to speak. So, you know, there's a, mm -hmm. there's multiple pathways but none of them actually work. And there's a probability as to which pathway. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. Anyway, I don't no, know I if we're using right. determinism yeah. proper, correctly or we're both using it the same way. No, I think it's fair. And I, it's like underneath this is like, there's interest science debates. Yeah. Uh, and debates between disciplines. Um, and there's certain people, I'm thinking about like Lakatos um, and um, uh, Popper and some of the debates that developed around there. Um, and there, there has been through a lot of the 20th century, there was through a lot of 20th century, it's a long time ago now, mm -hmm. 20th century, but there was through a lot of the 20th century, um, I, I think a certain kind of physics envy because towards the beginning of the century, there were just these enormous um, uh, discoveries in physics. And so, physicists sort of um, had this sort of outsized influence. And, and I think, you know, there's the famous Einstein's quote, Einstein quote that God doesn't play dice. And there's yeah. a certain school of thought mm -hmm. that was looking for deterministic models. Yeah. Um, and, and there's actually a certain philosophy and there's a certain kind of metaphysical set of um, maybe commitments or, or biases behind that. Um, but, but yeah, that like probabilistic deterministic is, is the probabilistic model. Does it really reflect fundamental reality or is it just something we do to help our model be better? And, yeah. and ultimately though, science was advanced to a substantial degree by the people who weren't so metaphysically persnickety and who were like, I don't know, 
I'm just going to use this thing because it works, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to use this probabilistic model because it works great, yeah. right? Um, and so, um, and, and actually, so, and this is all, I think, an argument for being, in a certain sense, pre-metaphysical, mm-hmm. right? Not, not getting too hung up from science. If you just want to train scientists, don't train them to get too hung up on these things. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, and, and I think the sort of determinism thing has taken mm-hmm. another big hit from John Conway's free will lectures, which mm-hmm. in a certain sense, though, are doing something different. Right? So he's not arguing probabilistically, right? He's actually arguing in a certain sense, deterministically mm-hmm. about the, the capacities of, uh, of, our, of uh, quantum mechanics to actually ever be deterministic in any way, basically. Um, and he argues that it's, it's in fact formally impossible. Okay. Right. And so that's not probabilistic. It's actually, it, it achieves something of this deterministic ideal, mm-hmm. but like just, but shatters the deterministic objective. Yeah. Right. And so, um, but you were bringing up sort of free will and the sort of model of, of the universe. And I, I just think at a basic, in a basic sense, it's all really passe, mm-hmm. right. And really like even not even like, like early 20th century passe. Right. And, and that a lot of metaphysical naturalists seem to almost be, acting as if that, you know, that ideal, that Einsteinian ideal is still like what defines science. And it doesn't even define physics, let alone, you know, like, for example, I think Nate Silver's work on 538, where he does a lot of uh, really good Bayesian quantitative analysis of polling data. Um, I mean, I, I think Nate Silver really deserves the um, classification as what he's doing as science, even though it's truly, it's very probabilistic, right? Until, until it came to his prediction about Trump. No, it was, his were great. I mean, his, his predictions are all probabilistic, right? Yeah. And, and he was bullish on Trump the first time. And in fact, his models were improving. I almost actually, I followed Nate Silver really closely. And right before the 2016 election, because I followed Nate Silver closely, I saw that Trump's odds of winning had bumped up substantially in the polls, even in the latest polling. Yeah. And I was seriously thinking of buying some Trump insurance and making a bet. <laughs> Uh, that Trump would win so that I would have some cash if he did win. And that's because I was following Nate Silver. So yeah. I, I think um, sometimes people don't know how to read probabilistic stuff mm-hmm. uh, and then they sort of give it a bad rap. But I, I think uh, I think Nate Silver nailed it. Yeah, I, I think in the beginning he was working with the poor uh, polling data and then he corrected his model <laughs> as, as things went along. But anyway... Um, yeah, so I don't know. I'm, I'm I'm a little bit thrown off here because I think um, oh I, I think for to you scientists are stuck in a deterministic paradigm. No, 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 no not at all. No. Yeah, like some people there's there's some people. So, right? Some of them are right. And and naturalist metaphysicists. So like people who and often these people aren't even doing scientists. They aren't yeah. even doing scientists, right? They're they're an atheist who's really committed to that. They're not a working scientist, and, and they're hung up on this vision of what science is mm-hmm. that doesn't comport in the first instance with what science is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah anyway, so I guess the, the question, the, the rest of the question was regarding this idea that we can envision a universe that has a, a natural cause and effect, even if, even if there's random elements in there, but it's still sort of like event A triggers event B and event B triggers either event A, B or C or whatever. And, and there's this, this sort of chain reaction uh, so that's that's kind of the the naturalist view of reality, and I'm saying, well, what if at some point in this chain reaction, somebody has to step in and introduce additional elements or or nudge things a certain way because they would never end up where they did. Right. And uh, I don't know how. I mean, I, I know that your metaphysics can 
incorporate that, where it can adapt to that possibility. But I don't know how it would correct science if science makes the mistake of assuming certain things when in fact that's not what happened. So Mm. I don't know if that makes sense, but I need, I'm still trying to figure out a way to communicate across the metaphysics here. So one, one, yeah, one piece of that, and this is where I think Conway stuff comes in in an interesting way too, is that, so let's say he's right, right? Then there's something happening at the quantum mechanical level that is not like physically deterministic. Now that opens an interesting door for saying perhaps, right? Well, maybe this is a place where some deeper level of reality is interacting with this, with this one, right? It's um, interacting with in a way that we can't predict at this level alone um, and if there is, you know, but but it, it at least opens room. It certainly doesn't prove yeah, that yeah. God is using the gaps in quantum mechanics to con- control right. the story yeah. of creation, yeah. right? Um, but it's also compatible, right? Um, so again, I'm not assuming that God exists, and I'm not even saying that this proves it. Um, but there's this these interesting sorts of uh, things. And what, one interesting thing, actually, that's appealing to me about that. Um, so in evolutionary biology debates, which is how this started, you often get into a God of the gaps argument, yeah. right? Where it's like, well, if I want to show that there is a God, I have to show that this phase of evolution couldn't have happened in a way that would have been publicly observable if we could go back in time and that wouldn't, something like that, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I, I just think that that's not, um, that's not a trap you want to fall into. You don't want to, yeah. like, my God is not the God of the gaps. And actually the term God of the gaps was developed by Christian theologian, right? And so, Mm -hmm. um, but what's interesting is like about the uh, Conway idea is that it's it's a it's a god of almost uh, a god of not quite the gap a a god of like gaps everywhere, yeah, right. And so you're no longer like oh God had to like come in in this moment and stick his finger in this and remake things. Um, You're actually able to say like oh here is something that pervades Mm -hmm. the uh, created order if we call it that. that uh, where there might be room for some other level of um, agency. And that could also be, and this is why Conway called it the free will lectures, right? This is also maybe a place where human agency can enter in. And I think from a classical theist perspective and, and even more specifically a Christian perspective, uh, that, that feels really good, right? It doesn't prove or disprove anything, but it actually, the idea that there would be some overarching structure to the cosmos where God's will is routinely manifest in, in weird little ways. Um, and that our own free will mirrors that in a much more limited way mm-hmm. that really rhymes with the concept of people as image bearers, um, carrying something of, of this divine spark in the created order. So, yeah. Yeah. um, and I think ultimately when we're doing metaphysics, right, we're, we're actually, because it's, because it's, easy to fit different things with different things. We have, um, it's, it's uh, underdetermined by the evidence, right? That there's just, there's not enough evidence to determine what it is. And so you have different theories that could work. Yeah. Ultimately, I think we, we raise an interesting question. This might be a good place to stop, which is, okay, cool. Let's, let's grant from the get-go that there are a variety of metaphysical frameworks that can explain the evidence that we have. Mm-hmm. How do you pick between them? Do you have to pick between them? Yeah. Well, you know, can you just say, okay, well, you know, these five look pretty good and these two look extra dumb, right? <laughs> um, and so that, that uh, I do have to run. I'm getting some some calls and things, but um, okay, okay, uh, maybe we can pick that up next time. Which is okay. So let's say, as with many times with theories, we don't have enough evidence to determine which one is right. There are multiple viable theories. With metaphysical theories, though, how should we pick among them if we do? Okay, so yeah, that's 
that's something I was trying to avoid getting into a discussion about which metaphysics is correct because that would take us on a whole other detour, but who knows, maybe we'll have to get into that. Well, hey, uh, <clears throat> since you have to go, I guess this is probably a good stopping place. It's been about an hour. Well, thanks. I appreciate you very much. This has been a fun conversation for me. I hope it was at least yeah, somewhat enjoyable for you as well. Yeah, it was great. Thanks a lot. Hopefully next time Dave could join us and we'll, we'll continue on. And also, right. I, I love to talk to atheists. I was atheist for uh, quite a period of my life and I'm very uh, sympathetic to uh, atheists, especially the smart ones. Okay, okay. <laughs> take care. All right, take care. <laughs>